Lord, we thank you for your grace and your goodness, and we read a passage like that, and Father, it's a heavy passage about a man that you used, a good, a good man, to pave the way for the coming of your kingdom. And Lord, we are thankful for John the Baptist and his, his work, his being the forerunner of Christ. And we thank you also that in that passage we're reminded of all the hardships, God, that you yourself faced as John was your cousin and he was beheaded. Father, we thank you that we have a, we have a king, we have a Lord who walks through this life of vanity with us, this life of wind, this life of heaven. But he doesn't do it from his throne room in heaven, but he came and incarnated with us, became one of us, but he gets his hands and his feet dirty in the world and experiences the sufferings that we've experienced. So we thank you for that, and we pray that you would honor your word as it's preached tonight, and that we would be encouraged in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to let you stay seated tonight as I read God's Word. It's a, it's a long passage, so I won't make you stand that long. But this is the Word of the Lord. I'm going to continue our study in Ecclesiastes chapter 2, verses 12 through 26. It says, So I turn to consider wisdom and madness and folly. For what can the man do who comes after the king? Only what has already been done. Then I saw that there was more gain in wisdom than folly. And there is more gain in light than in darkness. The wise person has his eyes in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. And yet I perceive that the same event happens to them all. Then I said in my heart, what happens to the fool will happen to me also. Why then have I been so very wise? And I said in my heart that this also is vanity. For of the wise as of the fool, there is no enduring remembrance, seeing that in the days to come all will have been long forgotten. How the wise dies just like the fool... So I hated life, because what is done under the sun was grievous to me, for all is vanity and a striving after the wind. I hated all my toil which I toil under the sun, seeing that I must leave it to the man who comes after me, and who knows whether he will be wise or be a fool. Yet he will be master of all which I toiled and use my wisdom under the sun. This also is vanity. So I turned about and gave my heart up to despair, over all the toil of my labors under the sun, because sometimes a person who is toiled with wisdom and knowledge and skill must leave everything to be enjoyed by someone who does not toil for it. This also is vanity and a great evil. What has man from all the toil and striving of heart with which he toils beneath the sun? For all his days are full of sorrow, and his work is a vexation. Even in the night his heart does not rest. This also is vanity." There is nothing better for a man, for a person, than that he should drink, eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also I saw is from the hand of the God. For apart from him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? For to the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. But to the sinner, he has given the business of gathering and collecting, only to give to the one who pleases God. This also is vanity and a striving after the wind. So this is our second sermon in the book of Ecclesiastes chapter 2. And on our journey through Ecclesiastes chapter 2, we've learned that the vanity of self-indulgence. We've accepted the preacher's invitation to join him on his trolley ride in the wardrobe of life. 
drinking from its potholes, swimming in its pools, playing on its playgrounds, and drinking deeply from its streams. Hopefully in some manner, in some degree, the preacher has undeceived us or disabused us from the path of the prodigal son. Hopefully he has pulled the wool from our eyes so that we might see the great and powerful Oz is not who he appears to be in the Emerald City. On this journey, we are encouraged to keep our wits, to walk with our eyes wide open. We're encouraged to ask the hard questions as we sample from the buffet of life. We're encouraged to evaluate, to consider, to test the counterfeit glories of life and to look for hope. You know, it's one of the problems that I have with the whole silence movement. You know, the movement where you, if you disagree with someone, they just silence you by calling you a racist or calling you a Democrat or calling you a Republican. That's not the way of the Bible. The way of the Bible is that we should have conversations. We should ask hard questions. We should give careful consideration to what we believe and what we think. There should be a healthy respect. We don't have that very modeled very well, do we, in our presidential debate. But that's the way of the Scriptures. Honesty. Honest answers. Honest questions for hard things in this life. Some in our world of Christendom are disturbed by the preacher, right? They're uneasy with his honesty about life. His questions sort of cause a, a nervous, sweaty palms to sort of happen. We don't expect our preacher to talk like this. We're very uncomfortable as Solomon begins to sort of undress before us. As he sort of calls us out of this pretending that we're so prone to do in the church. Pretending like we have all the answers. Pretending like we have it all together. Some may even ask, does the, does the preacher need a sabbatical, right? Has he lost his mind? Hopefully we have come with the preacher to the end of life's internet. Hopefully we have found that all that remains after the circus leaves is the crunchy peanut shells under our feet. Hopefully we realize that life cannot be found under the sun through hedonism. I think many of us here would probably tip our hat to Solomon and say, okay, you got me, you got me there, Solomon. I agree with you. Probably even the lost, even those who don't know Christ, would probably agree with us that life cannot be found in hedonism. At least if we're honest with ourselves, we could tip our hat. But you know, as soon as we tip our hat, this is how we are as people. As soon as we tip our hat, we come with our second rebuttal. Of course, mindless, unbridled hedonism cannot be the answer, preacher. But what about the path of wisdom? What about the path of work? What about the path of the elder brother? What about the path of the conservative? We know life is not found on the path of the liberal. 
We know life is not found on the path of the fool, but what about the sage? What about the wise man? Of course, life can't be found in the Democrat, but what about the Republican? Like children playing Marco Polo in the pool, right? One pursuit to the next. One salvation project to the next. See, the good thing about the preacher is he's the wisest man (laughs) to ever live. He's always one step ahead of us. Listen to what he says in verse 12. He says, So I turned to consider wisdom. I've actually already thought about this, the preacher says. What can the man do who comes after the king? Only what's been done already. So the question should come, what should come, what should rise in our minds is, why do we climb the ladder, Solomon? Why do we keep going up the mountain? If life cannot be found there, why do we keep trying to conquer the mountain? Why do we continue to go up? Why do I get out of bed in the morning, preacher? Is there no benefit at all from the wise? And Solomon, as honest as he is, he says, no, in verse 13 and 16, he says, then I saw that there is more gain in wisdom than there is in being foolish, as there is more gain in light than there is in darkness. The wise person lives life with his eyes in his head, but the fool walks around with his head in the sand. But he doesn't stop there. He says, and yet, I perceive the same event happens to them all. And then he said, in my heart, actually, the same event that happens to the fool is going to happen to me. Right? It's that one thing that we don't like to talk about. That we like to Avoid at all cost, and we find the reasons not to go to the funeral, right? It's death. The wise man and the fool will both die. The sage dies just like the foolish. The Democrat will die just like the Republican. The conservative will die just like the liberal. Preacher, you're diving way too deep for us. Can we get a breath? You're being too honest. I really don't like to think about this, preacher. Many at this point, we like to excuse ourselves. I I need to go, right? In the conversations, the uncomfortable conversations about life. If you haven't given thought to this, you should, right? Think about life under the sun. The the drunk who drinks and drives all the time lives to be 90 years old. He's been in 10 or 20 crashes and never died. And then the Christian family with a little girl who's 16 just out with her friends is killed in a car wreck. How do you explain that? 
church? How do you explain the fact that someone is wise in their health and they eat the right things and they die of a heart attack at age 30? While the drug addict and the drunk and the person who smokes and doesn't eat, he lives to be 80 and 90, maybe even 100 years old. How do you explain to the mom that wants to have children who's done everything right and can't get pregnant? How do you explain to her the path of the prostitute who has been pregnant several times only to opt for abortion? What do you do with that world under the sun? The young lady who has kept herself sexually pure and yet contracts AIDS through a blood transfusion. What, what, do you, what do you do with that? What do you do with the story of John the Baptist? What do you do with that story? He's the forerunner of Christ. He's the man chosen to come and make straight the path of the Lord. Jesus' first cousin. It actually says that the Holy Spirit came to be on him as a child in the womb. Really, God? He gets decapitated over a lap dance? John deserved better than that, didn't he, God? What if you do everything right and then tragedy after tragedy after tragedy? Solomon says, I hated life because what is done under the sun was grievous to me. For all is vanity and a striving after the wind. You see, some people wish for death like Elijah. He wanted death to come because he was so exhausted and trauma and fear told him that he was the only one. Some people want death because they're like Jonah. Jonah hated the people that God called him to love so bad that he was like, God, I just want to drown. And then some are like Job. They've undergone such tremendous suffering and pain and heartache and loss that they're just like, I just don't have any more energy, God. I'm ready to go home. But that's not where Solomon is. Solomon hates the estate, the fallen estate of our world. He, he hates the fact that things are not just. Things are not what they should be in the garden. Things are fallen. Things are broken. This sums it up in the book Recovering Eden. It says, Solomon hates death and violence that his neighbors inflict on others and against God. But before he spray paints his hate speech on his God posters, he understands why our neighbors tire of us with our ability to inflict them with what is contrary to love and life and grace and truth. You see, the world groans not only because of others, but because of me. Right? Because of my sin. We all hate that it's come to all this, don't we? 
Solomon hates that we can't get back to Eden. What do you do with this mixed bag in life? What do we do with this mixed bag? Charles Dickens' A Tale of Two Cities sort of captures it. It says, it was the best of times, it was the worst of times. It was the age of wisdom, it was the age of foolishness. It was the epoch of belief, it was the epoch of unbelief. It was the season of light, it was the season of darkness. It was the spring of hope, and yet it was the winter of despair. Life's not clean, is it? (laughs) We want it to be clean, but it's not clean. I have a story. I don't even know if I can get through it, but a friend of mine over in Crestview, he had lupus. He's only 26 when he was diagnosed. He went into the hospital. He asked the nurses not to move him. There were two nurses. They were trying to move him. He said, you can't hold me. I'm 240. I know you can't. But, and they drop him on his neck, and he bleeds in his spinal column. And anyway, it's just like this tragic story. Got to know Jeremy when I was in Crestview. Spent a lot of time with him. Always in constant pain. He'd probably even acknowledge he was probably addicted to pain. Killer. Had to have dialysis three times a week. And we talked quite a bit about suffering. I wish I'd preached through Ecclesiastes. A a little cedar box sits on my porch at my house. Jeremy used to get into my big truck in that box. Took him hunting once. He missed a big buck. He was so nervous. He sat in his wheelchair in the back of my truck. But Jeremy lost hope. He killed himself. What do you do with that? It happens every day in our world. What do, what do you do with that? Solomon says, I hated this broken life under the sun. I hated the brokenness of disease and the brokenness of marriages and the brokenness of life. Because that's not the way God created it to be. I watched a documentary on Hitler's youth. If you've never watched that, you ought to watch it. What do you do with that? What do you do with these kids of these videos of these 12 and 13-year-olds and these bunkers shooting down airplanes and then the next minute they're shooting each other with water guns and playing and Solomon says, I hated all my toil, all my work, which I toiled under the sun, seeing that I must leave it to another man who will come after me. Who knows whether he will be a wise man or a fool, right? And we know what? What do we know about Rehoboam, his son? He was a fool. He lost 80% of Solomon's wealth. 
He lost half his kingdom. He caused Israel many hardships. And then verse 20, the preacher says, So I turned. I turned about. And I just gave my heart up to despair. I just threw in the towel. Listen to that. He says, so I turned about and I gave my heart up to despair. There's this movie called All About Smith. I don't know if you've ever seen it by Jack Nicholas. He's sort of looking back on his life. He was an Omaha insurance company salesman. And he realizes as he comes to retirement, he has little to nothing to show for his weary labors. It's a comedy, but it's not a comedy, y'all. It's not comedy at all. It's just our way of coping with life. So he's adopted this little African boy trying to redeem his useless life. And he says, I know we're all pretty small. He's sort of writing to the little boy. And he says, I know we're all pretty small in this big scheme of things. And I suppose the most one can hope is to make some kind of difference in the world. But what kind of difference have I made? What in the world is better because of me? Once I'm dead and everyone who knows me dies too, it will be as though I never even existed. What difference has my life made to anyone? None that I can think of. None at all. Hope things are well with you, Warren Smith. Are you drowning in the sea of the Spirit at church? That's why God gave us Ecclesiastes. Are you lost in the wilderness of brokenness? Then Ecclesiastes has done its job. Are your hands empty? Are they limp and raw from hanging on to the ropes of your salvation projects? And the preacher has done his job. The preacher, is there a hallelujah in this cold, dark world? Is there a hallelujah? Is there hope? Look at verse 24 and 26. says, there's nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also I saw was from the hand of God. For apart from him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? For the one who pleases God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. But to the sinner, he has given the business of gathering and collecting only to give to the one who pleases God. This is also vanity and a striving after the wind. Martin Luther calls the end of Ecclesiastes chapter 2 a remarkable passage. One that explains everything preceding and everything that follows. He says it's the principal conclusion and the whole point of the whole book. Up until now, the preacher has done nothing but say, I, 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 I. He has been at the center of his own cosmos. And there's nothing there but emptiness 
in brokenness, in tears, and no hope. And here in these brief three verses, he mentions God three times. He says, all this I saw was from the hand of God. For to the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom only to give to the one who pleases God. You see, when we take temporal things and we make them central, there's nothing but misery under the sun. But when God is at the center of things, when God is at the center of our cosmos, then we can find joy in this broken world. We can find hope in the midst of the cancer. You see, this is the gospel. That when we come to the end of ourselves and we're ready for Jesus... But in America, it's really hard to come to the end of ourselves because there's so many trinkets. There's so many different things that we can run to for our salvation projects. See, the preacher is trying to help us find rest in the wilderness, not by running after God, but by just opening our hands and receiving the grace that He has secured on our behalf. We're all running, aren't we? We love to run. We love to earn it. The gospel is you can't earn it. You cannot do it. So open your hands and receive it with joy. And the preacher says when you do that, you can find joy and delight in the midst of the brokenness. You can find hope in the midst of the calamity. So stop digging, church. Stop running and stop digging your own broken cisterns. And come to Jesus, who is that cool drink of water. And come and just put your lips to the fountain and drink and drink and drink. Life is found there. We'll end with this. I'll just read it to you. This thing's about to fall off. Thomas Hughes captures the joy of the kingdom work in his novel, Tom Brown's School Days. One of Tom's classmates at a boarding school is George Arthur. He's a frail boy who contracts a life-threatening fever. Arthur has never been strong enough to run and climb and play and fight like the other boys. During his illness, he fears that he will never be able to work like the other men. Yet one night, he has a dream that fills his heart with joy, a vision of redemption's work. Arthur said, on the, on the other bank of the great river, I saw men and women and children The tears were wiped from their faces. They put on glory and strength. And all weariness and pain fell away. 
And they worked at some great work. And they all worked. Each worked in a different way, but at the same work. And I saw myself, and I saw Tom, and I saw myself, and even I was working. Isn't that good news? Isn't that good news for little Bryce sitting right there? Isn't that good news? That one day Jesus will make it all right. He will make it new again. And Bryce will run and skip and play like the rest of the little boys. You see, reality is we're all little Bryce, broken in our sin, crippled in our little chairs still hanging on to our salvation projects. When Jesus says, come to me, you who are weary and heavy laden. Let's pray. God, Ecclesiastes flies in the face of the health, wealth, and prosperity gospel. God, it rains on our green and youthful dreams. God, Jesus doesn't promise our best life now. But He does promise that He is life and He is life everlasting and that He will make it all new in the end. God, we thank You for the book of Ecclesiastes. We thank You that this book even though it is one, the other 65 spend, spend their whole energy to answer these questions. When I come to the sea of despair, then what? Jesus, thank you for your life and your death and your resurrection. In Jesus' name, amen.